Good morning. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. Glad that you guys are here with us. Um, he's risen. Amen. A um, couple of, of, of things first before we get started. There was a set of keys found in the church parking lot. Does it look like anybody's? Three keys like house keys? No? Okay. There's some unshady people that live across the street. I'm going to probably give them to them. They're yours, Jerry? Harley ring. You don't even have a Harley anymore, Jerry. <laughs> no, there's no Harley ring on him, Jerry. <laughs> um, I have a couple announcements for you. Um, if you, your kids are welcome here this morning in our service. Uh, there is um, some child care in the back. It's not our regular Sunday morning child care, but if you wish to put your kid back there at some point during the service, you're more than welcome to. Um, if not, you can keep them here with us. And if they're noisy, that's okay. Um, just keep their noise to, a, to a, a dull roar if you can. Help us with that, please. Um, I apologize for my voice. I've been fighting a, a respiratory infection. And um, what you have now is way better than what it has been. So I'm grateful for what it is. Um, there's a couple announcements in your bulletin. Um, we're updating our church directory, so if you would um, give us your new information or updated information, if you come to this church regularly or part of our fellowship or want to become a part of it, we'd like to get you in our church directory. So if you could sign up on the information counter there as you go by the kitchen, uh, there's a sign-up seat for that. Um, and then also our, our youth center downtown, uh, 310 Main Street, the bridge. We're having our fundraiser coming up on the 21st. And there's also a volunteer uh, sign-up for that. We're still in need of volunteers. Justin? Okay. And so there's a sign-up sign sheet. Lots of different things that you can do in helping there. So, um, And then lastly, the Daddy-Daughter Dance, which we sponsor and help out every year here in our community, um, is uh, coming up this next Saturday, the 7th. Kelly Trainer, who is out in the sanctuary, um, she's letting me know that we're still needing volunteers for the Daddy-Daughter Dance. That event has grown to about 1,200 dads and daughters over the last several years, so it's a really awesome thing that we get to be a part of with our community. So um, if you can help out with that, please speak to Kelly. Uh, you'll find her out there in the back. Uh, most of you know her, and if, if some of you don't know her, uh, ask somebody and they'll point you out to her. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning if you want to open up your Bible. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 33 is where we're going to read this morning. And we'll continue on into the first 12 verses of chapter 24. <clears throat> All right, I'll read, and if you'll follow along. It says in verse 33, and it says, when the And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and over the right hand and the other on the left hand, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even as the, the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then 
one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, as I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, verse 44, it says, It was, was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last breath. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd was, who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all of his acquaintances, the women, and the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. And he had not consented to their decision and deeds. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, whom himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock where no one had ever lain before. And that day was the preparation of the, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then, verse 56, they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, chapter 24, it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. But they, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to themselves, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and then on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. And they returned from the tomb and told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And, verse 11, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this opportunity to gather together this morning, to rejoice and to celebrate, to give thanks, to remember that you are alive, that we serve a God who lives 
that our Savior who forgives our sins and has given us this hope and promise of eternal life has risen so that we too might rise, Lord, when these bodies perish and um, come to the end of the life that you've given us here. Lord, as surely as you have come the first time and as surely as you have risen from the grave, Lord, you promise and we believe that you're coming again. And so this morning, Lord, as we cry out to you and, and worship you, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to start off this morning by telling you an, an Easter story. It's in the Bible. And it's, it's, it's a, probably a story about a man that, that you don't know much about. The year is 60 A.D. The place is Caesarea on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And this man, he has come to Caesarea to take over his mostly inept predecessor's um, job as the governor of the Roman province of Judea. And the situation he was entering into at this time was tense. It was unsettled considering the Jews who were under Roman rule were not known for their acts of submission. So this new governor began to set up shop in Caesarea, and he has one basic goal. Keep the peace. Don't let things boil over. But this would not be an easy task considering words of revolution were already blowing across the land. Insurrection was the word. And because one of the first problems he faced had to do with the trial of a man who had been imprisoned in Caesarea long before he ever stepped off the boat that had brought him from Italy. And it appeared that this prisoner had done something to upset these Jewish leaders. And now they wanted him dead. But this new governor... He would have great trouble trying to sort out all the vague and confusing details of the case. So only three days after landing on the shores of Caesarea, after taking his new office, he made the 60-mile journey to Jerusalem to pay his respects to the Jewish leaders, to the Sanhedrin, and to find out why they were so worked up over this one man. And this man who had been in jail for two years by this time was the Apostle Paul. And this new governor who was about to try him was Festus. And the events which we're talking about are recorded for us not only in secular history, but also in the book of Acts, chapters 25 and 26. And in Acts chapter 25, we're told that when Festus went down to Jerusalem after he made the journey and he met with the Jews there, that they brought all kinds of different charges against Paul. And they asked for Festus to transfer Paul's case from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. But we know, and and so did Festus, that the true ambitions behind the Sanhedrin, behind the religious leaders' requests, were very apparent as they wanted to set up an ambush to kill Paul while he was en route on his way back to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there had been a whole group of men who had vowed to not eat until Paul had been killed. So, Festus, being wise, refused. 
and these influential, influential Jewish leaders ended up coming with Festus back to Caesarea for Paul's trial. And when Paul was brought to stand before them, it tells us in Acts chapter 25, verse 7, that the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood all around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. And we know that they could not prove them because they weren't true. So Paul simply says to Festus, I'm not guilty of anything. I've committed no offense against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor. So he asked Paul if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there. Now, we need to understand, Festus, he wasn't a bad man. He was basically a new man. New to the scene, new to his job. He doesn't know Paul. He doesn't know about the Jewish law. He's a Roman governor. The whole case is mysterious to him. And transferring the trial to Jerusalem is, is, is kind of a compromise. But Paul's not willing to go back to Jerusalem with these Jewish leaders whose desire is to murder him. So Paul pulls out his trump card to avoid being transferred transported to and tried in Jerusalem. And he says in verses 10 and 11 of Acts chapter 25, he says, I'm a Roman citizen and I ought to be tried right here. If I'm guilty, punish me. <coughs> Excuse me. If I'm innocent, I shouldn't be handed over to these men. Then he says something that would change the course of his life forever. He says these words, I appeal to Caesar. And back in the days of the Roman Empire, every Roman citizen, of which Paul was, had the right to make the appeal. If a Roman citizen felt he wasn't getting a fair hearing, he could appeal to Caesar and skip all of the lower courts. Such a person would be sent directly to Rome, along with a statement of the facts in the case, and it was, it was like appealing to our own Supreme Court. There was only one catch. Once you made such an appeal as this, you could not change your mind later on. Now at this point, we see two other key figures come on the scene, enter into this story. A man by the name of King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. We know him as Herod Agrippa II. And he was the last of the line of Herods. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, the man who tried to kill the baby Jesus, and had all the infant boys of Bethlehem slaughtered. His granduncle was Herod Antipas, before whom Jesus was tried on that fateful night in Jerusalem. His father was Herod Agrippa, the first who murdered the apostle James and the one to put Peter into jail. Now Herod, Agrippa II, he's the king of a tiny territory northeast of the Sea of Galilee. He's relatively a young man at this time. He's Jewish, very versed in the Jewish religion, yet he's a, he's a loyal friend to Rome. And he and his sister have come to Caesarea to pay their respects to this new governor. But while they are there, Festus decides to ask for Agrippa's help. He doesn't have to. This isn't Agrippa's territory. He's more or less just a friendly consultant in the matter. 
Now, as I read Festus's words to you, that he spoke to King Agrippa, I want you to listen to how this new governor states this case against Paul. Because even though it's been 2,000 years since this event, the struggle with the resurrection of Jesus still continues today. It still comes through. And in Festus's words, I think we get an insight into how the worldly mind deals with the idea of Easter, with the idea of Resurrection Sunday. So in Acts chapter 25, verse 14 through 20, Festus is speaking, and he's speaking to his friend King Agrippa. He's informing him, he says, hey, there's a, there's a certain man here whom Felix, you can kind of hear that with a little disgust in his voice, who Felix has left as a prisoner for me. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. <clears throat> I told them that it is not the custom, it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he faced his accusers and has had the opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When the next came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court on the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. And when his accusers got up to speak, listen, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. They had some point of dispute with him about their own religion, about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I, Festus says, was at a loss to investigate such matters as this. Did you get that? A dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. And the clincher, I was at loss as how to investigate such matters as this. You see, Roman law didn't cover resurrections. Insurrections, yes. Resurrections, no. And to Festus, this idea of a resurrection was incomprehensible. He's never heard anything like this before. He doesn't know what to say or even where to begin. Paul isn't guilty of anything. He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not a criminal. A little kooky, maybe, with this resurrection thing. Festus is thinking, but that's it. And so Festus, guys, he gives us a picture. He gives, a, he gives us a picture of all the other broad-minded people in our world today. He doesn't himself believe in the resurrection, but it's okay with him if someone else does. And when the man of the world today comes face to face with a true believer, he also doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know where to begin. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what to believe. He doesn't believe it, but he doesn't know what to do with the resurrection either. And for 2,000 years, the men of this world, from generation to generation, have looked at the Easter, at the resurrection, and they've shaken their heads. They hear the words, they know what we believe, but they don't know what to do with it all. And sadly, those words of Festus continue to ring out across the century, down from the generation, Paul claimed that Jesus was alive. And I was at a loss 
how to investigate such matters. This is not what I expected. That's the words of Festus to us this morning. And to be fair, when we consider the resurrection, it's safe to say that the empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus was not even what his own disciples were expecting. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, which we read, it tells us that they did not even believe the report of Mary and the other women when she came and told them how Jesus' tomb was empty. And that an angel had told her that Jesus had risen. It seemed like an idle tale. They did not believe. And they doubted her even though Jesus had told them. They doubted her even though Jesus had told them that he would be crucified and he would rise back to life three days later. Nevertheless, we know that they would all come to believe as Jesus would appear to all of them in many different places at many different times. And in doing so, listen, this is where it gets real for us. Because in doing so, Jesus demonstrated that by his death and resurrection, number one, that he defeated sin. And that he conquered death just like he had promised. That's what we celebrate this morning. And in the light of this, I would like to answer the question that Felix was left with, or Festus was left with, really this question that every man faces, this question of why is it important for me, why is it important for us to know and believe that Jesus is alive today? Paul, the apostle, writes about it, but for the most part, the most important reason for us to know and believe that Jesus is alive today is because that our Christian faith, our faith, means absolutely nothing if Jesus is not alive, if he did not rise from the grave. It's about faith. And, and Paul wrote about this to the Corinthian church, and he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 12 through 19, he said, since our message is that Christ has been raised from the death, how can some of you say that the dead will not be raised to life? If this is true, it means that Christ was not raised, and if Christ has not been raised from death, then we have nothing to preach and you have nothing to believe. More than that, we are shown to be lying about God because we said that He raised Christ from death. But if this, if it is true that the dead are not raised to life, then, then He did not raise Christ. For if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith, my faith, Paul says, is a delusion. And you are still lost in your sins. And if our hope in Christ is good for this life only and no more, then we of all men are the most pitiable. Paul's point is the foundation of our faith rests in the fact that Jesus has risen and is alive. The very foundation the forgiveness of our sins, freedom from the bondage of sin, the hope of our own future resurrection into eternal life depends upon the resurrection. And these promises mean nothing if Jesus did not rise from the grave. As Paul said, Jesus is alive. And if we don't believe in the resurrection, then we have no reason to have faith in these promises that Jesus offers. Furthermore, the teaching of it and the belief in the resurrection is what, set Christ, is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world that ever has been and ever will be. And the teachings of Jesus dying for the payment 
And forgiveness of our sins can't be apart from the message of the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus gives us our assurance. It gives us the assurance of our salvation and the guarantee of our own future resurrection. Paul also wrote about this continuing on in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And he says, but the truth is, Christ has been raised from death. As the guarantee of those who sleep in death will also be raised. For just as death came by the means of, the, of a man, in the same way the rising from death comes by, by the means of a man. For just as all people die because of their union with Adam, when sin entered in, in the same way all will be raised to life because of their union with Jesus Christ who defeated sin. So clearly... The resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational to our faith, but it's our faith, guys, that gives us our hope. Something that the world doesn't have. Hope. It is our faith that gives us our hope, and hope is the second reason for why it's important to know and believe that Jesus is risen. To know and believe that Jesus is alive. This is because the resurrection is a power, is a display. It's a display of the power of God. It's a display of the power that Jesus had over, or has, present tense, over sin and over death. It's this aspect of our Christian faith that we put our hope in. And Paul rightly said, if Jesus has not risen, then we have no hope. If Jesus has not risen, then we have no hope. Hope, because we would be lost in our sins and condemned to suffer an eternal death just like everyone else. But since Jesus is alive, we have hope. We have hope. We have hope in the power He possesses to save us from death and hope in His authority, the Bible teaches us, to forgive our sins. It's one thing to make a claim to be able to forgive sins, but to have the authority to do it is another thing. And this is because Jesus' power over death and the authority to forgive, his, to forgive sin is proven through the resurrection. It's the proof. And in light of this, we must remember, even by what Jesus said, that when Jesus walked the earth, he, he claimed to be the Son of God. Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, the expressed image of God the Father, one in the same the Son of God who had the power and the very authority of God. This is what Jesus claimed. And as a result, as you can imagine, there were many people in that day who heard these things who challenged the claims that Jesus made, asking for proof. Oh yeah? God man? Prove it. Yet Jesus only ever said to them that their proof would be his resurrection. What a claim. Jesus did all kinds of miracles before people. He calmed the storms. He walked on waters. He feed thousands. He raised the dead to life. He healed the lame. He made the blind see. Yet in all these things, people who saw this said, hey, give us proof that you're the son of God, that you can forgive sins, that you have the power and the authority of God. Prove it. Prove it. And Jesus said, this will be your proof. Once you kill me, I'm going to come back to life. 
An example of this is found in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, where it is said, the Jewish authorities replied with a question, what sign can you give us to show us that you have the authority to do this? And Jesus answered and he said, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it again. And of course, these, these carnal, these earthly-minded men was thinking about the, the temple, Solomon's temple that Herod had reconstructed, and they laughed at him. But it says here, it says the temple that Jesus was speaking about was his body. Therefore, when he had risen from, his, from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus said. The point is, the hope that our sins have been forgiven is proven by the resurrection of Jesus. Equally, our, our hope that we won't remain forever in a grave once we die is also proven and guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter, he tells of this hope in this very specific way, and he says this. He said, Blessed be the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God through, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in this last time. Furthermore, guys, Jesus said this about it. He said, I am one of the seven I am statements found in the book of John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, the words of Jesus, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So for us who put our faith and our hope in Jesus, believing that he died and rose from the grave. We know that when our soul is ultimately separated from our body, that will immediately enter into the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says, who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, living forevermore to make intercession for us today. Today. And in 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us this, simply affirms it by saying, hey, there's no afterlife, it says, to, other than, uh, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no, oh, uh, what am I thinking of the word? I can't even think about it. Um, reincarnation. There you go. Thank you. And it says this, to prove that, it says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. When you die in this physical body, I've, I've done, I do hospice chaplaincy. I've been with people. I see people in that process. And, and when they die, they're gone. And if you've ever seen a loved one laying there after they've stopped breathing, after the mind stopped functioning, after the heart stopped beating, you look at them and you go, that's not them. That used to be them. That's not them. They're not there. It's clear. It's evident. And because they've left the body, they, who they are, it's absent from the body. And what happens? They go to be with the Lord. They go to be with the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord, our soul waits until the return of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that at that time, our physical bodies will also be resurrected from the grave, but it'll be transformed. These bodies will be transformed. The Bible says into an incorruptible body, one that is free from the effects of sin. No sickness. And then I'll be reunited with our soul. This is our hope. This is our hope. And it's insured by Jesus' resurrection. Insured. 
Consequently, for the sake of hope, it's important to know and believe that Jesus has risen from the grave and is alive today for the sake of hope. But there's a final reason. A final reason for why it's important for us to know and believe that Jesus is risen. Same reasons that Festus needed to know. That we know. That the world needs to know. A third reason for why it's important to know and believe that Jesus is risen and is alive today. And it's because the resurrection is a display of God's love for us. The resurrection is a display of God's love for us. Faith, hope, and love. And we know, the Bible teaches us, and we know this just inherently that, 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 that when one lays down his life for another, it's because they love them. And the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross <coughs> excuse me, is a great demonstration of God's love for us, the ultimate demonstration. But so is the tomb. The sacrifice on the cross is a symbol of love, a demonstration of love, but the empty tomb and the fact that Jesus showed himself to be alive is equally a demonstration of God's love for us. Why? Because if Jesus had never shown himself to be, his lo- to be alive, his disciples would have never known for sure if he had been raised to life. And an empty tomb without a living Jesus provides no hope and creates a place for doubt. But Jesus did show himself to be alive. First to his disciples, then to many others. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes and says, even to a crowd of 500 at one time, and he did so, showed himself to be alive. He revealed himself over and over and over again before he ascended into heaven because of his love for them and of his love for us. And the fact that Jesus showed himself to be alive, first and foremost, is a demonstration of God's love because it's our proof that by Jesus' sacrificial death, peace was made between you and I. Peace was made for us between you and I, between God. Between us and God. And and in the Old Testament, we're told that under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, that the high priest, the Levitical high priest was acquired on the Day of Atonement, once a year, to enter into the temple, to go past the veil of separation that was torn as Jesus hung on the cross and into a place called the Holy of the Holies before the, the mercy seat there on the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed for the sins of the people. And while in this holy place, the high priest would take the blood, he would sprinkle it, Oh, the sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, and as an, as an offering for the sins of the people of the nation. Atonement. But we also know, according to the Levitical law, which we've been studying, is that, is that if the high priest had not prepared himself, <coughs> just as God com- had commanded, the priest would be struck down dead inside the Holy of the Most Holies, and the sin offering would not have been accepted. Therefore, the people knew that the offering had been accepted and that their sins had been forgiven only when the high priest came out alive from behind that veil of separation. When he showed himself to be alive. But now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
Jesus being, the Bible teaches us, the very Lamb of God, we have been given a new covenant, one that is in His blood, a covenant of grace, the Bible says, through faith. And as a result, we have a high priest, Jesus, the mediator who offered up His body, not only His body, but His blood as a sacrifice for the payment and the forgiveness of our sins. And the fact, guys, that Jesus was sacrificed on the cross and rose from the grave and walked on the earth, showing Himself to be alive, reveals how the sacrificial offering of His life, which was freely offered for us, was accepted by God. was accepted by God. Simply put, our high priest came out alive. Our high priest came out alive and proved that our sins have been forgiven. As a result, we're told that we can come boldly, boldly, with courage, with confidence, into the presence of God today and really freely receive all of God's love as He pours out His grace and mercy on us. Here in the resurrection account found in Luke chapter 24, we're told in verse, in verse 5, we're told that when the two angels appeared to Jesus' disciples at the tomb, they asked this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Sadly, I want you to know that there are many people today who are seeking the resurrected Jesus among the dead still today. They say Jesus was a great example. They say Jesus was a good man. They admire his teachings, but they treat him as though he is dead. And they dismiss the resurrection so they do not have to believe that he is the risen Lord to whom they will one day give an account. Justin, if you want to come up, we're going to end with this this morning. In light of this, I want to encourage us this morning. I want to encourage you all this morning. Do not dismiss the resurrection of Jesus simply because you're unwilling to submit your life to Him. Jesus told us in John chapter 5, verse 29, that just like He was going to rise from the dead, Jesus, so will every person be resurrected. And the Bible says some to the resurrection of life and to others a resurrection of condemnation. All will rise again. Some to life and some to condemnation. That's the words of Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 29. So it's important to know and believe that Jesus is risen from the grave and alive today because a decision to believe or not to believe in Jesus as the risen Lord will determine what, to what resurrection you will be raised to. Guys, John chapter 3, familiar passage, verses 16 through 17 says this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through, but that the world through Him might be saved. You need to know, if you don't know this this morning, that God's desire is for you to be saved. To have the same hope that we have. To receive this love that God offers to you freely by grace through faith. 
in the Son of God, the person of God, in the Son of Jesus Christ, the work of God through the Son of Jesus Christ, who's alive this morning and wants you to enter into a relationship with him, with him, where you surrender your life and say, I am no longer the Lord, but you are my Lord. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you too will be saved. I want to close with this simple prayer. It's a prayer that you can pray. It's a prayer of a profession of faith and of your acceptance of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So if you guys will stand with me this morning, we'll close with this prayer. If you wish to pray it out loud with me, I invite you to do so, even if you have before, as a recommitment. And then we'll end with the last song of worship. Dear Lord, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive my sins. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In your precious name, amen. Let's worship.